Previously on The Storyteller, Violent Delights. A 22-year-old man is arrested and after hours of interrogation leads detectives to the body of Maxwell Garvey. One of the accused blurted out, I'll, sh I'll show you where the body is. And the cause of death is discovered during a challenging post-mortem. The head was removed from the body. The tutu bullet was quite clearly shown in the skull. I'm Isla Traquair, and this is the storyteller, Violent Delights. A true story of love which began as a fairy tale, but ended in a nightmare. From castles to a courtroom, this story rocked Scotland like no other. It's a crime so historic, only a few characters are alive to tell the tale, and I'm tracking them down for what might be the last chance to discover the truth behind the headlines and who killed Maxwell Garvey and why. Sunday, August 18th, 1968. Sergeant Bob Grant and Inspector James Murray drive around 150 miles to Fort Augustus, a picturesque village on the southern tip of Loch Ness in the Highlands. It's a popular destination for tourists attempting to spot the mythical Loch Ness monster, but Sergeant Grant and his colleague were looking for a potential murderer. They met 20-year-old Alan Peters in the local police station and cautioned him. He responded by hanging his head and saying yes. He agreed to tell secrets that would earn him a seat in the dock beside the glamorous 33-year-old mother Sheila Garvey and 22-year-old Brian Tevendale. All three were remanded in custody awaiting a trial that would captivate the whole country and sell more newspapers and take up more column inches than any story before. But who shot Maxwell Garvey and how did the trio know each other? I'm sitting on the floor of my office and every inch of the floor is covered in papers. And these are the newspaper articles, hundreds of newspaper articles that were written at the time of the Garvey trial. Now, most of the journalists who wrote these articles have passed away, but there are a few alive and I have interviewed them and we'll hear from them later. One of them is 97. Now, my career began as a crime reporter for a newspaper and I went on to become a television correspondent and I've covered countless court cases, but I've never seen anything like this. I'm looking at a photograph right now showing the queue of hundreds of people that went round the block. They had to put barriers up on the pavement. Many of them got turned away every day, but it's just incredible. Now, there's a teenager paying close attention to this trial. His father was a police officer and this is what inspired him to become a journalist and ended up becoming a Fleet Street heavyweight. His name's Gordon Hay. And little did he know that he would go on to become the first journalist to ever talk to Sheila Garvey. I was 15 years of age. Uh, and uh, I now know that it was the, the, the Garvey case that kind of perhaps maybe didn't spark my interest in being a journalist, but certainly uh, fueled it. My father was a policeman back then, and a friend of his, a detective, was one of the first into the culvert that uh, where the the uh, body of Max Garvey was buried. Well, was had been placed under a pile of rocks, 
Um, and I remember him talking to my father about it. Uh, I became fascinated with the case and I, I, I read two papers every day during the 10-day trial. It was the Press and Journal and the uh, Scottish Daily Express. Um, and it was just a, you know, it was 19, 1960s, so it was a swinging 60s come, comes to the northeast kind of thing, you know. Um, and it was, it was one of these cases I now know that just had everything, you know. Uh, it had uh, sort of the wealthy farmer, it was a murder, it was a mystery for quite a long time, the missing farmer. Um, and then when the evidence started emerging in the thing, it was every day it was a front page story, you know. Um, I mean, I felt a wee bit, I suppose, uh, looking back as the wee boy looking through the, the fence and watching it all, because each day on the television you saw the, <coughs> the lines of um, uh, the public uh, queuing for, uh, you know, from early hours of the morning for, for seats in the, in the public gallery of the, the High Court in Aberdeen. And then my father uh, was on duty uh, at the court um, most of those days, but he wouldn't get me a ticket to go in. One person who ended up with an unexpected front row seat was a newly qualified police officer who was asked to be Sheila Garvey's escort for part of the trial. My name is Evis Ritchie. I was Evis Scott at that time, and I was a policewoman constable with Aberdeen City Police. I had virtually just finished my second stage training, which is the end of the probationary training. I had experience of being in the police court and in the sheriff court, but never in the high court. It was a sensational, a sensational time. Um, and it was a case that rocked certainly the northeast of Scotland, but the whole of Scotland. I was delighted that I was going to be involved because it was such a sensational crime. And at that time, everything was new to me. And this was the opportunity for a very new experience. Do you remember how you felt that first time you went to pick her up and knew you were going to see this sort of, I guess, famous woman that was uh, the, the focus of so much attention? Well... I suppose I had various thoughts in my head, but it was mainly, what was this, what was this lady like? I mean, what had happened in her life to cause her to be where she was, to be sitting in the dock of the High Court on a charge of murder? She was a quiet, ordinary, pleasant uh, person. Um, she had blonde, neat and tidy hair and uh, she was dressed in a pale blue suit. So uh, smart and uh, you know. She was very smart, very smart and uh, very tidy. I think I got the impression that she would have been, um, you know, fussy about her appearance. She was an attractive lady quite slim. And of course, she was a, a wife, a mother and a daughter. The pale blue skirt suit she wore to court had been sent to her by her mother, Edith Watson, 
after obtaining special permission to be allowed a package so she wouldn't have to put on her only clothes, the skirt and blouse she'd been wearing while cooking lunch on the day of her arrest. Already slender, her weight had dropped to seven stone during her time in remand. Every morning, Evis would collect the skeletal Sheila from Craigench's prison and take her to the court where in those days there was far more pomp and ceremony. The sitting of the High Court was a rare occasion um, because it only heard the, the most serious of crimes in Scotland, this being one of them, being a charges of murder. It was a very ceremonial occasion uh, with a guard of honour at the courthouse door and uh, awaiting the arrival of the judge, who on this occasion was Lord Thompson. And when he appeared, he would get out of his car and I suppose he inspected the, the guard who were, to the best of my recollection, they were in kilts and white gloves, and I think they had rifles. Um, and he would have walked through this um, guard of order into the high court. And then describe to me how you got up into the court and, and what the courtroom looked like. Well, the, the, we were under the court at that time, and there's about a few steps, I believe maybe 16 steps, uh, coming up from below the court through this trap door, which led immediately into the dock. And uh, uh, my colleague or myself may have gone first, followed by the accused, and then the second policewoman would have followed. And the, uh, the accused uh, would have sat between us, and then we would have just surveyed the whole court, which um, this was my first time, and it was all very tense. I would say, and as I looked around, saw the QCs and their robes and their wigs. And then there was Lord Thompson, he was up on the bench and he's red and white and he's um, in his, his wig. And we just sat there and I, I was focused on Sheila Garvey, of course, because uh, she was my concern and my colleagues, of course. And uh, and then the proceedings started. All eyes were on the three accused, the beautiful woman and two younger men, who at this stage, the public had little clue of their connection. But as each witness gave evidence and each piece of the jigsaw produced, a shocking tale emerged. Now the majority of people involved in this case are dead, but you're about to hear their words come to life from the court transcript. You'll also hear some of the thoughts of Sheila Garvey, which she recorded in a book, Marriage to Murder, years later. Her words have kindly been performed by award-winning actress Kate Dickey, who now explains how Sheila felt sitting in the court. Before I knew it, I had been catapulted into the jaws of justice to be swallowed up remorselessly by the tide of public opinion. From the moment I stepped into the dock until sentence was pronounced ten days later, I hardly reflected on what the outcome of my trial would be. 
It was as if I was a one-woman audience watching a macabre pantomime. I never thought about what would happen when the curtain came down. My mouth was parched and dry with panic. The kind of fear that not even the powerful tranquilizers given to me by the policewoman could control. What has been called one of the most sensational criminal trials in Scotland's history was about to begin and I was in the dock. Prior to the commencement of the trial, a motion had already been lodged on behalf of Mrs Garvey, giving notice that she intended to attack the character of her dead husband in respect of his unnatural and perverted sexual practices. She also lodged a special defence of impeachment of one or other or both of the co-accused. This defence had only been used twice in Scottish legal history and effectively meant that she was alleging that Tevendale and or Peters committed the crime. Meanwhile, Alan Peters had also lodged an unusual defence of coercion, claiming Max Garvey was murdered by Tevendale and Mrs Garvey and any acts done by him in connection with the murder were on the coercion of Tevendale. The cream of Scottish legal talent sat around the semicircular table before the judge. Sheila Garvey's representative was Lawrence Dowdle, the famed go-to solicitor. Dowdle's was probably the top criminal lawyer in Scotland at the time. Uh, and because the cry used to go up from criminals when they got, uh, got huckled was uh, Get Me Dowdles. And that was, the, that was the title of his book, Get Me Dowdles. Despite his vast experience, Dowdle said that after reading the police statements from the three accused, he'd never come across such diametrically opposed versions of the same event. He enlisted one of the ablest QCs in Scotland to conduct their defence in court the silver-haired and silver-tongued Lionel Dykes. The one that stands out particularly to me was Lionel Dykes because he was a tremendous orator and it was almost like watching a, watching a film or a play, but of course it wasn't. This was actually for real. It was quite amazing and the QCs were so dramatic with their histrionics. Uh, it was interesting in itself just to watch them um, and listening to their dialogue and their jargon. Defending Tevendale was Kenneth Cameron, son of High Court Judge Lord Cameron, and for Peters it was Dr R Taylor QC. The legal heavyweights weren't just on the side of the defence. The Crown had selected the Solicitor General Ewan Stewart QC to prosecute. Unlike some trials where the evidence is drip-fed to the jury over many witnesses, he dropped a massive bombshell right at the beginning, the first of an arsenal of explosive allegations that would emerge. While questioning Max's reserved younger sister, Hilda Kerr, Mr Stewart read the missing persons post from the Police Gazette, describing her brother, the respected farmer, like she'd never heard before. Spends freely is a heavy spirit drinker and often consumes tranquilizers and Pro Plus tablets when drinking. Is fond of female company but has strong homosexual tendencies and is often in the company of young men. Is a man of considerable wealth and until three years ago was completely rational. Of late became very impulsive, probably brought about by his addiction to drink. Has threatened suicide on at least one occasion. 
deals in pornographic material, is an active member of nudist camps and is an enthusiastic flyer. May have gone abroad. This was just the beginning. And already the journalists were scribbling at lightning speed, realising the dynamite evidence that was to emerge. Uh, it was quite a dramatic trial, as you know. Um, and for Aberdeen journals, there were four reporters from the Evening Express and four reporters from the uh, Press and Journal who uh, took it in turns to... Uh, uh, report uh, on the Evening Express one person would do 20 minutes then he, he or she would be followed by, for, another, for the next 20 minutes then the third one 20 minutes and the fourth one 20 minutes by that time they were back at the number one place again I mean the, the public were really interested in it I spoke to a farmer's wife who said she couldn't get her housework done until she'd read the paper that morning. That's the voice of 97-year-old retired journalist Jimmy Lees. His colleague Ted Strachan was worried he'd end up having a heart attack from running back to the office and up and down the stairs to file copy. There was a case of somebody running around from the court to the general office, which was then Broad Street. I think we had some good sense that Jimmy might give himself a heart attack running around from the court to the... And they run down to the corner to the journal's office to maintain almost a verbatim account of it. Stuart McCartney, a journalistic legend nicknamed The Bullet, was sent up from the Express newspaper's headquarters in Glasgow to cover the story. I started in the Express at uh, <laughs> 24.8 a week as a copyboy. And I became the chief reporter. And I was, I've been, I've interviewed Biggs in Brazil and been at the World Cups and Christ knows well. And I did the Gabby trial and uh, it was a winter, it was cold. And uh, I don't know if you're aware of this, but they wouldn't, the, the, the judge banned the enemy walking out in the court all the time so reporters could go and phone their copy, and I mean, there was so much to do, and it was a, it was a page one splash in the Express for, for I don't know, a week, ten days, and it was a, an interesting story. Had the first time we'd ever imagined the Aberdonians doing it about sex, the silence in the court, because the judge ruled, and he was very, very strong, and... Uh, uh, we had to go out to phone. I didn't phone copy. My job was to write the front page splash. And we had two reporters who wrote the inside story, which I could look at uh, and see what, if I wanted to lift anything from it. But my job simply was to write the chief, was to write the page one splash. It was, a, it was the biggest murder case. Hell, I'm talking about, I saw the Peter Manuel murder. This was the biggest ever before his time. It was a huge murder. It was the biggest murder case ever in in the north of Scotland, ever. Nobody's ever stood in the dock accused of what Sheila Garvey did. The press and public were taken aback by the salacious details that started to emerge. But their judgments were irrelevant. It was the opinions of the jury members that mattered most to the three accused.
Sheila described them as a motley assortment of ordinary-looking people, a mixture of tweeds, feral sweaters, Sunday suits, headscarves, handbags and handkerchiefs filled the jury box of nine men and six women. She needed at least eight to believe her version of events, to be able to walk free with a majority not guilty or specific to Scottish law, not proven verdict. One of the men in a Sunday suit was the father of Lorna Watson. His place on the jury earned him an almost celebrity status in his local town of Bucky. My dad was Alexander Watson, who was a member of the jury for the Garvey trial. My dad was a carpenter in the shipyard. He normally went off to work um, in his dungarees and working boots, and suddenly uh, he was away in the car instead with a smart suit um, and, and heading off quite early each day because he had to be in Aberdeen at the court probably for about nine o'clock, so he would have had to leave by seven each morning. Tell me, you you said at one point uh, he had to get met by the police on his way to get to court. Yes, he he, um, normally picked up one of the other jurors in Tariff, so he took the route from Bucky to Aberdeen via Tariff, um, but somehow there must have been journalists, I presume, uh, bothering him or had picked up on this that he would stop in in Tariff, so towards the end of the trial, the police were escorting the car in. Tell me how significant this trial was at that period of time and in that geographical area. Where I lived, it was a very traditional uh, coastal town, um, very religious in those days. Everybody went to church and therefore had fairly religious traditional values. So um, the sense around was in whispered tones as you listen to adult conversation that this was um, fairly shocking. And not the kind of behaviour that uh, people were used to. Uh, certainly they saw it as fairly scandalous. Although it was uh, the 1960s, uh, perhaps that was happening in London or some of the English cities, but it hadn't made its way up to the northeast of Scotland at that time. So um, things were very conventional. And this was not how we saw the farming community behave. Um, obviously it was a, a particular cadre of the... Uh, farming community who were so wealthy that they lived this lifestyle but most local people where I lived hadn't been aware that people lived that lifestyle that they had private planes and more than one car and and that sort of um, wealthy lifestyle it's it's not something that people were familiar with so it really was a, an eye-opener into a different world that um, most people weren't familiar with. Looking back Did you think that actually being in the jury put strain on your father? I think it would have been um, because it was such a different world and going into a courtroom and it's full of educated professionals and it bears no similarity to the normal life that you live. And even in your home community, it's, it's making a wee bit of a focus, maybe not a celebrity, but certainly a focus as a person of interest. The reason for that focus was that Mr Watson was seeing every photograph and piece of evidence, not to mention hearing from the witnesses firsthand, including suggestions from Max's sister that Sheila was leading a rather carefree life and attaching herself to other men. She denied any knowledge of Max's character description in the Police Gazette relating to drink, drugs, pornography and nudist clubs. She too had reported him missing 
but only gave police a physical description. Next, the local minister was questioned about his knowledge of the Garvey's marital problems and their sex life in explicit detail by Lionel Dykey's QC. But the most dramatic moment of the first day was yet to come. A bespeckled woman looking much older than her 59 years in a cream coat and brown velvet hat climbed into the witness box and soon after collapsed into the arms of a policeman, overcome with emotion by the first question. Do you recognise the accused? Edith Watson locked eyes with her daughter for the first time since the day she'd gone to the police. The question remained unanswered. She was so poorly an ambulance was called and the trial was halted. Sheila and her co-accused were taken back to their prison cells to await the second day of the trial the following morning. In the next episode of The Storyteller Violent Delights, Mrs Watson reveals the deadly secret she'd been hiding for months. I presumed Maxwell was dead. She did not see anything about what happened, but I presumed he was dead. And we hear the words of co-accused Brian Tevendale and how he was forced to have sex with Sheila under the instruction of Max. One night, I was staying at their farm and he pushed Sheila into my room and he locked the door. This is the storyteller Violent Delights, written, produced and edited by me, Isla Traquair. The title music is Searchlight by Cathedral and all the other music is written and performed by Nick J. Tyler. There's more information on social media and please subscribe to hear the next episodes. And if you've enjoyed this, please rate and review on iTunes. It really makes a difference and helps other people hear about this story.